Father, call us into service tonight, Father, through your word. Call us into a life that is devoted to you in the times we live in, times that might be hard and getting harder. Father, call us to sacrificial living for you. Call us to an understanding that the call of our faith doesn't end when we confess, but it begins there. And in the life you've offered us through Christ, we did nothing to enter, but you've asked us, Father, to serve you as a result. And so, Father, as we hear what Paul has to say to a young man who is facing trial and temptations to walk away from what you gave him, I pray, Father, we hear those words spoken to us as well in a new age, a different time, and a different place, but perhaps under, coming, under circumstances that may be very similar and soon to be similar. And we thank you, Father, that you can give us the word before we need to hear it and prepare our hearts before we have to face what may come and that you would strengthen us for the work you have for us, Father. We pray as we enter into this new study that you'd be working in our hearts even as we listen to, to do the work you intend to mold us and to make us who we need to be. We thank you and we praise you. We anticipate what you have for us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We know this letter was written by Paul. He announces himself at the outset of the letter, as he normally does. And when the Apostle Paul was commissioned by Jesus to become an ambassador, an apostle to the Gentiles, Jesus announced that calling with these words. In Acts chapter 9, he said this in verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's time serving Christ as an apostle included the burden of knowing his life would end in martyrdom. And as Paul's death approached, he faced that end with exactly the same resolute faith that he displayed when he served Christ in his life. He testified without fear, he traveled without regard for his personal safety, and he taught as boldly as he ever did. And shortly before he died at the hands of Nero in Rome, Paul penned the final letter to enter the canon of Scripture. It was his second letter to a young man, his protege, who was ministering in the city of Ephesus, the young man Timothy that we were introduced to in our study on 1 Timothy. We're picking up now in the next letter, and in many ways these two letters, though you might assume they'd be closely connected, are actually very different. Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy following his trial and later his acquittal by Caesar in around A.D. 62. And after that acquittal, Paul resumed his travels in Asia Minor, having left Timothy behind in Ephesus to continue his work in that city. And so at a point in those travels, he penned 1 Timothy. And at that time, if you remember our study, we just concluded, he was concerned for the church's continuing steadfastness in the face of an influence from false teaching and just generally from the pagan city that they were occupying. We noted in our study that that first letter is similar to another pastoral letter, the letter that Paul wrote to another pastor called Titus, because that man was dealing with some very similar issues in Crete. And Paul's letter in both the case of 1 Timothy and Titus provided doctrinal instructions primarily, doctrinal instruction combined with some exhortation on how to do things properly, how to lead properly in the church. And we call them the pastoral letters because they shore up faltering groups of immature Christians led by inexperienced pastors. Now that term pastoral letter often gets appointed as well to 2 Timothy because again, he's writing to a pastor. But the tone and the nature of what he's writing here is hardly limited 
to pastors. It's quite broad. It's very much a treatise to the Christian who is dealing with the problems of a persecuted church. And knowing that explains why Second Timothy comes in the way that it does. It comes under such very different circumstances, both for Timothy and for Paul. The year now is AD 67, and Emperor Nero has literally gone crazy. The burning of Rome in AD 64 prompted Nero to blame Christians, leading to their persecution throughout the empire. And ever since, it has become dangerous to be identified as a Christian or to have contacts with leaders of the movement, especially senior leaders like Paul. And as a result, Paul has now been re-imprisoned in Rome and has gone through a preliminary hearing already. And based on what happened in that preliminary hearing, Paul is certain that his death is imminent. He knows he will not be leaving prison this time. So under a deadline, that is, knowing his death was close, and with concerns for the church's response to this growing persecution that was breaking out everywhere, Paul then writes this second letter to Timothy. It tells us how special this young man was and the church in Ephesus that Paul would spend his final act of writing talking to that group and to that young man. His final words in this letter are evocative of the final words that Moses spoke to Israel or that Joshua gave to Israel before his death. All three of these men, Joshua, Moses, and Paul, they all call upon God's people to hold firmly to the Lord in their faith and to look forward to the Lord's fulfillment of all His promises to them, not on earth, but in a heavenly way, and to face difficulties that were going to come on earth knowing what was headed for them in heaven, what was waiting for them in heaven. That's going to be Paul's central point to Timothy. It's been a few years since Paul wrote 1 Timothy, now that we reach this letter. And conditions in Ephesus have worsened considerably since 1 Timothy was written. Worldliness has continued to invade the church. The life of the body now is affected by false teachers who are growing in the city. The church is under persecution now from the Roman Empire, which is a new thing since the first letter. And, add to all of that, the apostles are fast disappearing. The leadership in the church now is transitioning quickly to a second generation, of whom Timothy is part. That trend, all of these trends I mentioned, combined with Paul's impending death, leads him to adopt an urgent tone in this letter and a very personal appeal. There's no letter in the New Testament more personal than 2 Timothy, and there's several indicators of that as we go through the letter. We'll make note of them as we go. Paul draws upon personal examples. He makes multiple appeals. He mentions many names, which is a way of indicating how much Paul had last thoughts on his mind, almost like someone on their deathbed calling their family and friends to come to the bed before they pass away. Paul had that sense in the letter a little bit. Looking at the letter overall, there's four chapters, and they move between two central ideas. In the first half of the letter, Paul is encouraging Timothy to follow Paul's example of courage in the face of persecution. Courage means facing persecution without changing the message, which pleases Christ. And it may mean chains. It may mean martyrdom. But God gives grace to face such things. Ultimately, those things will bring reward. And even in the best of circumstances, ministry is difficult and hard. But under the temptation of persecution, walking away is a very likely outcome for those who haven't been strengthened in the word. Especially when the penalty you're facing might be your own life. So Paul gives strong argument to Timothy to stick with the plan despite what's coming. Secondly, Paul puts these circumstances and the times they're living in in perspective with a lesson on the end times. So the second half of the letter will move toward a discussion of end times. Paul will compare 
the situation that the church in Ephesus is facing in his day to the situation the church as a whole will face in later days. And then Paul explains how the church must face both in similar ways. And now we may not live in Paul's day, we don't live in Ephesus, but we are living in the last days. So obviously we should give careful attention to these instructions because I assure you, though we don't see it personally perhaps in our corner of the world right now, there is a day coming when you will know persecution if you live long enough here. And the church will certainly know it. And when those days come, how will the church respond? So let's begin in that sober reminder. Let's begin with where Paul does in this letter. And I, I do hope I've given you a sense of the, of the background and the context. I want you to have that in your mind. I want you to saturate yourself in that culture if you can. Feeling the pressure of someone like Timothy in the church. Knowing what's going on in, the, in this powerful empire as they set themselves, to set their swords against the Christian. For the first time really in a unified way since the church began. And look how Paul responds or asks the church to respond under those circumstances. Second Timothy 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. I'll pause just to give acknowledgement to how Paul opens his letter. His salutation or his greeting is similar to the ones he's written before, and particularly it's similar to the one in 1 Timothy, though Paul reverses the lens here with what he did in 1 Timothy. As usual, he identifies himself as an apostle by the will of God, that is, he knows he's a man called into leadership by a personal appearing of Christ. He's called according to the promise of life in Jesus, he says. What he means is, he was called to be part of a plan that God designed to bring salvation to people. He wasn't suggesting he's essential to that plan. Rather, he's just reminding Timothy, God appoints men and, in other ways, women to ministry so that he can accomplish something through them. Keeping in mind, God needs no one. But by his grace, he calls many to serve him, which is to our honor and to our blessing if we serve. But when a man is called to service, especially if he's called in evangelistic or pastoral ministry, that man becomes part of a plan of God for the salvation of other people. And as such, each minister must approach that role, his role in that way, with a sober and a faithful dedication to the task at hand. That was Paul's attitude, and that's his opening to Timothy, because he's going to call Timothy to adopt a similar mindset, not to take this calling on his life lightly. Paul says in verse 3 that he served with a clear conscience, as did his forefathers. That's a powerful statement, and it's one bound to prompt jealousy in any minister, speaking for myself. Having a clear conscience doesn't mean having no sin in your life as a consequence of serving God. There's no such person. But it means that our motivation, our approach, our effort in serving Christ was never compromised. 
We didn't resort to false methods. We didn't move the motivation from serving Christ to making money. We didn't get lazy in the process. We didn't skirt the effort. We understood the urgency of what we're here to do. We understood that we've been called to do it. Our life's been put on a path to serve God in this way. And lives, souls, are lying the balance with whether we serve Him or not. Paul says that he served with a clear conscience. It means that, though I'm sure he had regrets from one thing or another, something he may have done here or there. Hopefully, for all of us, those regrets are not our strongest memories in ministry, but rather they are fleeting moments. But Paul says he has none. And I think that's truly remarkable. I take him at his word. Obviously, he was a man of exceptional faithfulness, and that's not something you needed me to tell you. But he was in a line, he says, of special men, like his forefathers, men that God called to serve him in key moments in history. You can think of men like Noah. You can think of men like Abraham or Moses or Joshua or David. Paul, near the end of his life, with his life's testimony having been written, feels a clear conscience to put himself in league with those men. And I think, as Scripture, we can say that God endorsed what he was saying. This is the Paul we now know, and it's certainly been proven over history. We hold him in high esteem for good reason. But Paul had a self-awareness in the day of where he stood. I wonder which came first. Did Paul's appreciation for his importance come after his work? Or was it because he had an appreciation for what God intended to do with him that he approached his work the way he did? I would tell you, I think it's the latter. Just as Moses knew who he was, just as David knew who he was, just as Abraham understood who he was, that these men were called in unique ways and understood it as such, all the more reason to be faithful. I don't think we're done with having men and women, for that matter, called in meaningful ways, significant ways, although I doubt we'll see another Paul, but at the same time, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of other opportunities. And when anyone gets that call in their life, they should not look past it. Paul extends a customary greeting to Timothy of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus. And then... Paul thanks the Lord for Timothy's salvation and for Timothy's ministry. Interestingly, in 1 Timothy, Paul, in his salutation, thanked the Lord for his own salvation and for his own ministry. So here you have a switch from emphasizing thankfulness for what God has given him to emphasizing thankfulness for what God has given Timothy. That not-so-subtle change is an acknowledgement, I think, from Paul that his time in leading the church was coming to an end, and now it was Timothy's time to step into the foreground. So Paul prayed for Timothy, he says, constantly, he says, night and day. He longed to see Timothy. And when they were separated, he says that brought them to tears. It's easy to imagine that Timothy was like a son to Paul. He even calls him my beloved son. Remember, Paul had no natural-born children. may have been the closest thing to a son that he had. I'm sure the feeling was mutual. Then notice, Paul adds, his seeing Timothy allowed him to be Filled with joy. A small phrase, but one that's interesting if you've ever read the book of Philippians. Because that's the book we often call the book of joy that Paul wrote. Paul says he rejoiced under all circumstances. But clearly, based on what he just said here, he wasn't joyful under all circumstances. And there's no contradiction there. To rejoice in all situations does not mean to feel joy at all times. It means understanding God is working to produce something good, even through suffering. Therefore, we seek to feel joy even as we rejoice in whatever God brings our way. Christianity isn't an emotional-based relationship. Fundamentally, it's not based on emotion. It triggers emotions, yes, but it's not based in emotion. You're not in God's will when you're happy. You're not in trouble when you're sad. You rejoice knowing God's in control. All things have a good end. 
You seek joy in the better things of life as God permits. But your rejoicing isn't based on joy. That's an emotional walk with Christ. And the problem with that, of course, is the moment persecution becomes the norm, you won't have a joy in being in Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm joyful when I'm around you. Because Timothy added to his joy, but he wasn't the basis of his joy. Timothy's enduring faith in the midst of difficult circumstances, Paul says, was a continuation of Timothy's family's testimony. He says Timothy's mother, you may remember we talked about this in 1 Timothy, he had a Jewish mother. Her name here we're given is Eunice. Her name just means good victory. She was a woman of faith, and that led Timothy to be raised in a house that knew Christ, though she was married to a pagan Greek father. And then even her mother, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, was also a believer. But Paul isn't necessarily crediting his mother or his grandmother for Timothy's faith. Faith is a gift from God. Parents don't have the power to impart that on their children. And parenting isn't the determinate factor in a person's life when it comes to how they turn out in any respect, much less religious respect. But God commonly works through parenting, through good parenting, to raise up godly men and women. And he gives promises to that effect. So it's no surprise that believing children are far more likely, though not guaranteed, to come out of believing families who live their faith out in genuine ways. Just don't push on the rope, as I like to say. While it is true that godliness in a family can be useful to God in promoting godliness within children, it does not follow that if a child is ungodly that that means that the parents were ungodly parents or that they failed in some regard. You can't take that equation and go backwards with it. Sometimes parents do all the right things and kids still do what they care to do. That's the nature of of what our flesh will do. After this brief greeting, Paul moves directly into his exhortation to Timothy, and now we begin really the heart of the first half of the letter, verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy was a man of sincere faith, Paul says. He came from a family of faithful servants. But because of that, Paul turns to Timothy at this point and he says, I want you to kindle afresh the gift that you have. And we know from 1 Timothy what that gift was. It was the gift that had been given to Timothy through the laying on of hands for pastoral ministry. That's the conclusion I drew from 1 Timothy. He says, kindle that gift afresh. And kindle afresh is one word in Greek. That one word is a compound word made up of two. The verb is compound and it's made up of two words. The first of those two words is living creature. And the second word is fire. So together they would describe something living that's in danger of dying, of going out, of being extinguished. Paul says that your spiritual gift, Timothy, seems to be in danger of being extinguished. Timothy was a young man. We know that from 1 Timothy. We know he had a nervous stomach of some kind. But we also know he was called by God's Spirit into leadership and into authority in a church in a very difficult situation in a pagan city. That gift, Paul said to him in 1 Timothy, was from the Lord. So that means God anticipated that Timothy would assume a role of leadership. You don't give someone the gift of pastoral leadership if you don't expect them to assume a role of pastoral leadership. And that's going to be true for Timothy, even if he doesn't look the part. Paul's choice of words is something very worrisome. Just a few years after Paul's first letter to this man, it seems as though... Timothy was in danger of walking away or his pastoral concerns were in danger of dying, of becoming extinguished, his pastoral role. And we don't know how far Timothy has moved away from his calling, but we do get an indication of what was responsible for Timothy slipping 
in his dedication to this task. Because Paul tells Timothy in verse 7 that God did not give him a spirit of timidity. Paul's observation seems directed at his chief failing, knowing that he was a timid, fearful, nervous person, or so it would appear from his first letter. He was a young man, and he was dealing with difficult circumstances, leading a pagan church in a major city of the Roman Empire. And he was closely associated with Paul. He had traveled with Paul. Paul had visited him in the city multiple times. He's written, written letters to him. It would not have been hard for anyone to figure out that Timothy was a protege of Paul. So now that Nero was actively pressing for the persecution of Christians and particularly going after any leader who was promulgating the church, helping develop it, helping send it out, well, that would have meant that a man like Timothy serving in a powerful large city like Ephesus was in a particularly dangerous role. It would not be a surprise then to hear that a pastor like Timothy, under his circumstances and in light of the persecution, would shrink back a little bit at least from serving publicly, from being bold in the face of opposition, and particularly out of fear of Nero's persecution. And Nero was especially hard on leaders. You've heard of Roman candles as part of a 4th of July holiday here, but the term started in the early church. Because Rome, Nero's Rome, would take Christians, put them on a high wooden pole, some ten or more feet off the ground, stand them on top of this pole, have them tied up, and they would light it. And as the pole and the person on top burned, they would light up an area around the palace where they were entertaining. They were literally using burning Christians as light for their parties. We called those Roman candles. That's what was facing men who might step out at this time and be vocal about their faith and and lead the church. So knowing all this is going on, the temptation would have been very great for Timothy to lower his profile. He might have declined to preach or he might have tried to resign in his leadership of the church or maybe he denied his association with Paul or even renounced some of Paul's own teaching. We have no indication that Timothy took any of these steps, but Paul's exhortation would suggest Timothy was at least in jeopardy of some of these things. The enemy, Satan, who's always the one behind any persecution of believers, he never lowers his profile. He never takes a day off. So when a man of God like Timothy takes a day off, so to speak, the enemy gains ground, both in the life of that individual and in the life of those he may guard. So Paul says to Timothy... The spirit you received was not one that experiences or knows timidity. The Greek word is literally the word for cowardice. Timidity in Greek is cowardice. God did not put a coward inside us. So when you act cowardly in respect to your faith, you are operating by definition in your flesh, not in your spirit. The flesh is desire, the old part of you, the part of you that is not new, that will go to the grave, that will one day be replaced, that flesh, its desire is always to preserve itself. And the spirit is trying to drive that thinking out of us, while the flesh is trying to continue it. So rather than a fearless spirit of God, like the one we've been given at birth, our flesh is a coward who seeks only for self-interest at the expense of whatever God may want. So what Paul is telling Timothy indirectly by saying you don't have a spirit of timidity, he's saying, Timothy... If you feel like hiding, or if you feel like repudiating your ministry, or me, you should know that if you do that, you're acting in the flesh. You're not acting in the spirit. Because such a response could never come from the prompting of your spirit. And we're talking about the spirit God puts in us at new birth, at the moment we believe. 
which is accompanied by God's Spirit, of course. If Timothy did that, he would be guilty of making the very same mistake that Jesus described when he said this in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus says anyone who wishes to save his life, he's referring to the fleshly instinct to save our physical lives. The flesh has a natural desire for self-preservation, to avoid threats, to avoid persecution, even martyrdom that may come against those who follow Christ. Our flesh will look for ways to escape that pressure, even at the expense of spiritual gain. If the thought of these possibilities, Jesus says, scares us out of our willingness to follow Christ, then he says you will lose much more than you gain. Because at most, if you listen to your flesh and you try to escape persecution in those ways, what are you going to gain? Maybe, what, a few more years of living on this earth only to die eventually anyway? An unbeliever who does that, well, they lose their soul. And a believer who takes that route, they have the potential to lose eternal blessings of one form or another. They don't lose their salvation, that's not in question. But they have still a risk there that's far greater than the gain. So the better trade, Jesus said, is to be willing to lose one's earthly life, if that's what it comes to, for in doing so we gain eternal things. So the Lord gives believers a spirit of, Paul says, not timidity, not cowardice, but rather a spirit of power, love, and discipline. Once again, we're talking about the nature of the spirit that's given to every new believer at the moment of faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have in you now a new spirit, different than the one you were born with, that is a spirit of power, love, and discipline. At the moment you believe in Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, your spirit is born again in the likeness of Christ. That new spirit possesses, among other things, these three qualities. Qualities or abilities you never had before. Specifically, you have power. You possess power. Now, spiritual power here refers to a bold character that recognizes the authority that you have when you're serving in a calling from God. A spirit of power is not a promise of supernatural power, nor does it imply that you can exercise power over demons or even over other people. That's how this gets abused or misinterpreted. It's rather describing a strength in the spirit to serve God without concern for the consequences, without worry about persecution, operating boldly in the confidence to serve the living God. The power of your spirit, when you're living in the spirit, when you're walking with the spirit, not listening to your flesh, won't allow you to be frightened away from your duties in serving God merely because someone on the earth threatens your earthly life. It's a power that understands Matthew 10:27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That last part you may have heard more than once. But did you know it was united with that earlier comment in the way it's provided in the context of Matthew? He's saying don't fear the ones who can kill the body. In the context of get up on top of the housetop and proclaim the truth of the gospel. In other words, it implies that when you get up there and start proclaiming, people are going to hate you for it, and then don't fear what they can do to you. The two go hand in hand. A good example of a man who's operating in the power of his spirit can be found in the prophet Amos, from the book of Amos in the Old Testament. He was a goat herder in the southern part of the nation after Solomon. So he was a goat herder, 
just a guy out in the fields with his goats. And at a point in his life, the Lord sent Amos from Judah to the northern kingdom, which was an enemy of Judah at the time, to go against the king of the northern kingdom and to proclaim to that king that he was under judgment for his apostasy. The calling God put on that man's life to go before a king with all the power that a king had and tell him to his face that he was under judgment for apostasy and that God was going to bring him and his people into judgment, put him in great jeopardy. Nevertheless, he does it. And at one point in that confrontation, here's what we read happening in Amos 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Stopping there for just to give you the full context. So the priest, the false priest of their false religion up in the northern kingdom, tells their apostate king that this guy Amos has been walking around and the things he's saying, we can't even stand to hear it anymore. Because he's saying, you're going to die, we're all going to go into exile. No one really likes to hear this stuff. And then Amaziah the priest says to Amos, next verse, verse 12, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. And then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. Then he says this, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. That's a man walking in the Spirit and knowing the power of the Spirit at work. Not that he was levitating or calling fire down from heaven, but he spoke boldly to people who far outranked him and had far greater power against him, saying things he knew they wouldn't want to hear. And why? Well, because God told me to do it. That is to say, if God has called you to something, he will equip you for the purpose of fulfilling that calling. Though it may mean your life. And those two things are not in contradiction. That's the story of the martyrs. It's been that way, and we'll come back to that way, we're told, before it's all over. That's the power that Paul is reminding Timothy he had. It's the power we all have. That is, if you're called to something as God has appointed, you have a spirit in you that can fulfill that calling without cowardice, without fear. Secondly, Paul says, we have a spirit of love. Now, the love we receive by the Spirit is very different than the love we know already in the flesh. The flesh knows how to love only one thing, itself. That love is entirely self-centered. When the flesh feels threatened, as in the case of persecution, loving itself, then it naturally takes steps to preserve itself. That is not the kind of love that God's love is. God's love is nothing like that. God's love, the Bible calls agape love. In fact, that's exactly the Greek word that Paul uses in verse 7 when he says love. He says agape. And agape is selfless, self-sacrificial love. Jesus defined it as being willing to lay your life down for another. That's what love is, biblically. It's the kind of love you show to God and to others when you're living in the Spirit. You sacrifice yourself to serve God. You sacrifice your own needs for the sake of someone else. And when we walk in the love of our spirit, we think nothing of self, but only of God and of those God wants to reach through our hands and feet. That's the love that Paul wants Timothy to know, rather than the selfish love of self-preservation, which may have been driving some of Timothy's behavior. 
Then finally, the Spirit gives us discipline. And the Greek word for discipline is, I think, better translated self-control. Or we could say self-discipline, I guess. It's the sense of disciplining your own desires. And once more, this is very different to what you find in the flesh. Your flesh has literally no self-control. That word makes no sense in the context of flesh. Because indeed, the flesh feeds itself constantly and insatiably. That's the nature of flesh. The Bible calls that kind of insatiable appetite lust. And the flesh has nothing but lust of one kind or another. Our fleshly lusts go after many things, but it goes at all times. There's never a time when your flesh is not wanting something. And some of those wants can be compatible with godly desires, like wanting food. But even then, if the flesh were left to its own, it would want it more than it should want it. Or it would want the wrong things too much. That's the nature of flesh. Now take that nature and put it in the context of persecution and deprivation, which is coming in the church at that time. And what is the flesh likely to seek for? Well, it's going to seek for ease. It's going to seek for comfort. It's going to seek for the approval of men. The ego in us, in other words, will seek for that approval. We therefore may retreat from our testimony or from being willing to assemble with other believers. In Timothy's case, he may have neglected to act as an evangelist. You may remember Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy that he had the role of evangelist as part of his job. Well, better to remain on good terms with the Roman authorities than to risk losing your friends or your home or your freedom or your life, right? That's the compromise that your flesh will cause you to make and give you all kinds of justifications for why being quiet in the face of opposition is better than taking a risk. After all, we don't want to upset our professor, we might not get an A. We don't want to upset our boss, we might get fired. You always have these compromises right around the corner. Neighborly relationships, family relationships. Would you rather have a quiet Thanksgiving dinner or risk praying in such a way before the meal that you have an argument? The point being that the flesh seeks for the comfort and the easy way out and the gratifying way out. Paul says, the spirit in us, if you rely on it, it will exert the necessary self-discipline that allows us to say no to the flesh. We can ignore the world's threats. We can forego the comforts that they put in front of us. We can avoid conceding. We can press on with the mission that we've been given because we have the discipline to know that comfort is not the highest goal. Timothy may have been meek, he may have been timid, he may have been fearful, but those qualities all were in his flesh. They were not in his spirit. So if he was living in this way, according to what Paul's saying, it has to mean he was walking by the flesh and not by the spirit, and that's not a place in which he could serve God. So from that reminder, Paul now calls him into action, and that's where we go in the last part for tonight, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher." Well, we can see why verse 8, Paul would start with therefore. I mean, that's the natural thing you'd say at this point in light of the truth he just gave in verse 7. Because we have a spirit capable of moving in strength and love and self-control, therefore let's take steps in keeping with that spirit nature, right? Specifically, he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me. Paul's request certainly lends weight to some assumptions I'm making here concerning what Timothy may have been doing in Ephesus. It seems as though Timothy struggled with maintaining a public testimony 
before those who might persecute the church. And it also seems as though he might have distanced himself to some extent from Paul. Paul, in addressing this problem, refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's an intentionally ironic statement. Because you remember, at the time he's writing these words, Paul is sitting in chains in a Roman prison. And as Timothy receives this letter, he would have heard, if nothing else, by the courier who brought it, that Paul was imprisoned again now for the second time in Rome. And that might have increased Timothy's worries. And I wonder if Paul was even a little concerned about that fact. If Paul's in prison, what will happen to me? So Paul describes himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but of Jesus. Because long before Rome imprisoned Paul, he had already been enlisted to serve Christ. Jesus has taken hold of all of us in that respect. And he uses our lives to glorify him. And he brings us home to glory for all eternity when it's all said and done. And if you see yourself that way, if you understand you're a prisoner of Christ and we're just waiting for the day he brings us home, then we don't worry as much about what this world could bring us because really nothing in this world can trouble us when we know what the end is. And as I always like to say, if you're going to die anyway, why not use it to God's glory? In fact, Paul says he was made. Notice it says he was made to suffer for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. Paul says the Lord, by his power, brought suffering on Paul. Which is just what we read in the book of Acts, right? He says, I'm going to show him all that he has to suffer for my namesake. It's not like Jesus didn't know it was coming. He says, I want it to come. And that suffering was purposeful. How did Paul's suffering serve the purposes of Christ in the church? Well, it furthered the cause of the church by giving a strong testimony to the truth of Paul's message. You know, it's often been said that men don't, generally speaking... They don't suffer the way the early church martyrs were willing to suffer, merely to defend a lie or a conspiracy. Especially not when you don't stand to gain anything for it. Even if it's believed, they got nothing out of it. So when you see someone like Paul suffering in the way that he did, as God appointed, it validated his confidence in his own message. And as a result of his sacrifices, many more were brought into the church, many were strengthened through his example. So once more, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me. What he's saying is, don't be ashamed of your own testimony, and don't be ashamed of your association with me. And when he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, Paul's not concerned about his own reputation here. This isn't about Paul wanting to maintain some star status in the church. And I don't think he's that concerned about Timothy's personal testimony, per se. Paul's concerned for the strength and the persistence of the church in Ephesus. I mean, for example, should the church's own shepherd in in the city, Timothy, Should he back down from a public, courageous stand for Christ? Well, what would become of all his sheep under those circumstances? How strong are they going to be? And if that pastor repudiates Paul's ministry before the authorities, then how would Timothy defend the truth against false teachers who were trying to undermine Paul's teaching? He wasn't even willing to identify with Paul, it would seem. There was a lot on the line in Ephesus, and it all hinged on the leader of that church standing firm against a growing threat. And so to help Timothy face that challenge, Paul reminds Timothy of his own example there at the end of verse 8. And in the process, Paul launches into one of the clearest summations of the true gospel in all the Bible. I would note somewhere, verses 8 through 11, if you ever want to take someone who comes to your door trying to convert you to some other religion, just take them to verse 8 through 11 of, of this book. There's others as well, but this is a very clear statement of faith, not by works, by the appointment of God through Jesus Christ and no other and that God and Christ himself is eternal. Verse 9, Paul says, The Lord called each of us into a saving faith by his grace. It was a holy calling. That is, it's a calling to live out the faith we've been given, to be set apart. Holy means to be sanctified or to be set apart. 
for God. And Paul says, our calling into our faith had no relationship to our works. That is, our place in heaven is neither obtained nor secured by our good works. We bring nothing to our salvation. We contribute nothing to our own glory. We are servants. We are slaves. We are enlisted to glorify the Lord according to His power and by His grace. And that saving grace, Paul says, was granted to us from all eternity. And Paul says something very similar in another letter that he wrote to this very same city, the city of Ephesus, in the letter we have called Ephesians. And at the beginning of that letter, Paul says this, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So Paul holds out that the supreme evidence of God's unmerited favor of his grace for his children is that he had a predetermined plan before even the earth was created to adopt us, a plan that began, he says, from all eternity. So if you know that you were chosen by God to be in the family of God by a faith that he gave you, and that choice was made for you before the world began, how can we fail to serve a God who singled us out from all eternity, who chose us for his grace? How can we ignore that? How can we not seek to serve him in that? And the church of our time, the time I'm talking now from Pentecost through to today, the church has an especially privileged place in this plan, Paul says, because we are the ones to whom the revelation of the Messiah has come. God's grace for his children was granted from before time for both Old Testament saints, for New Testament saints. But the plan of how you got that grace, for how your sins were forgiven, how you were given opportunity to become righteous by the work of God through Christ, that plan centered on the arrival of Christ in the form of man, to die on the cross, to redeem the world from sin. That's the center of the plan. That had to happen at a moment in time. And of all the people in all times, in all history, we are the blessed to have the revelation of Christ. That is, the saints of old would have longed to see the things that you and I know in detail through the Word of God and with the benefit of hindsight. They didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. They didn't know how the plan was going to be done. They knew there was a promise of God making a provision through some means to solve the problem of our sin, but they couldn't see it except in a foggy way. We now see it with clear hindsight. It's laid out for us. All the more reason why to whom much is given, much is expected. We have the full message. We have the full clarity. We have the full assurance. We should be those who work even harder. Paul says, by his appearing, Christ abolished death for his people. And I think it's really hard for us to appreciate this truth, this side of the grave, because our physical bodies still must return to dust. So when we hear that he abolished death or death no longer has his power over us, your mind typically is drawn to the physical death we all know. And in some sense, it feels like a muted promise. Like, I'm not sure what he means when death doesn't have power. seems to still have power on me. I'm going to die and so on. I've heard that from people. But we know the death Paul's speaking about here is not physical death. He's speaking not about the death of the body, but he's speaking here about a death the Bible calls the second death. Every believer should know that the body's death is a welcome event. It leads to a new, incorruptible body. That day is not a bad day. We're looking forward to that day. 
When Paul says, though, that we don't have to worry about a certain death, the abolishing of a certain death, he's speaking about eternal death, the separation that comes from God for every soul that perishes without God's grace. In that sense, the word death is kind of ironic because the second death is a life, an eternity of separation from God in an eternal state of living in suffering, which is really a state worse than death. The death is so severe that it weighs on the subconscious of every believer. The writer of Hebrews says that unbelievers live in fear of death. And to see an unbeliever as they face the final moments of their life on this earth is to witness true fear of death. But Christ's appearing brought him to his own unjustified death so that he could abolish the second death for any who are covered by his sacrifice. And with the abolishing of the second death, Paul says, comes opportunity to enter into immortality. So rather than darkness and fear and separation, we will know at our physical death an eternal light in an age of glory with God, he says. So that's the, the future promised eternity for all believers. Nothing can invalidate that promise of God. So if that is our future, one that's only a heartbeat away, then how do we act? Why do we act in fear or trepidation if we face an earthly threat? I mean, what is the real cost of faithful discipleship? It's just merely a willingness to sacrifice something you want to lose and you can't keep anyway, which is your physical body. That's really all that's at risk. We make that more important than everything else when we know in our heart of hearts through doctrine that it's the least. In fact, we're ready to give it up. How much better would it be then if you get to give it up in the course of glorifying God through martyrdom? That's like a win-win. You get out of this world into the next that much sooner and you do it by glorifying God in the process. Here again, if you're not taught from Scripture to appreciate these things, the hallmark card theology that gets thrust at you now and again won't suffice in the face of the moment when someone puts a gun to your head as the caricature goes and says, deny Christ, if that ever does happen. But more often it's the subtle things. It's funny, you know, we talk about if someone walked into my house with a gun and said, deny Christ or I'll shoot you, we say, I'll take a bullet. But then at work we won't say anything to our neighbor at work about Christ because we're afraid we'll get in trouble with the boss. People are compromising in the little things of life and we're so sure that in the big moments our spirit will come to the rescue. It's my contention that if you aren't working your spirit in the small moments, it won't work in the big moments. In other words, you'll rely on what you've gotten used to relying on. So Paul reminded Timothy that they serve a God who saved them before they knew them and that's why they serve him continually. And he says he did it being appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. God called Paul to this life as part of God's predestined plan, but that call also included Paul furthering the administration of the gospel in those three ways. And a preacher is a herald, someone who brings news to someone who needs to hear it. And Paul was one of God's heralds and the principal preacher to Gentiles, of which, by the way, Timothy was a beneficiary. The implication being that Paul's obedience as a preacher was instrumental in bringing Timothy into the faith. And if Timothy was a beneficiary of Paul's obedience, then that raises the question of, well, then who might not hear the truth if Timothy isn't obedient to his own call to be a preacher? Paul was an apostle also, which is one who is sent with a message. Apostles differ from preachers in that apostles are called to begin a work of a church in a new place. Heralds speak and move on. Apostles put down roots to ensure the planting of something permanent. Paul was an important part of planting the church in most of the known world at that time. Most Gentile churches had some connection to Paul, including the church of Ephesus. Here again, the implication for Timothy 
is that Timothy would have had no church in Ephesus had it not been that Paul was obedient to his calling as an apostle. Paul did that obedience even in the face of threats and persecution from Jews in the city. So how could Timothy put that city at risk by shrinking back from shepherding what Paul helped start? And then finally Paul says, I was a teacher. A teacher is one who perpetuates the spiritual growth and maturity of a group of believers, of what has been established. So even after Paul helped establish the church, he returned on multiple occasions in his journeys. He wrote letters, and every time he returned, he took another chance at losing his freedom or his life. And that didn't stop him. He just kept coming back to do work there because he was called to be a teacher, which means he couldn't forget what he started. Likewise, Timothy was called to continue in the same way, growing that church, not to decimate it by running away in fear or denying Paul's teaching in the face of opposition. Those three mentions of preacher, apostle, and teacher were all mentions intended to stimulate in Timothy a conscience of recognition he had a work to complete that had been handed off to him by someone who had been faithful in his work. No, as opposition grows in Ephesus, these pressures will grow, and therefore no amount of hype or earthly logic is going to withstand the temptation to shrink back in the face of torture or death. Only the confidence you have in the Spirit that your life is fleeting anyway, regardless of what comes your way, and your call to live your life for Christ is to trump anything the world would throw in front of you. And by the way, the call of Christ does not necessarily include long life. As I said earlier, our days are moving in the direction that Paul warns Timothy about in the days of persecution. We may not see it in our own backyard just yet, but it's coming, the Bible says. When it comes, we need to remember the words that Paul said to Timothy. We need to rest in the power, love, and self-control available to us in our spirit so that we can give it good testimony no matter what may come. Heavenly Father, strengthen us for whatever comes. We may not see the kind of persecution that Timothy saw, at least not yet, and perhaps not here. But the enemy is here, and he is continually working to silence us, to create in us fear and doubt and worry, to silence the church, Father, for that's his only means of succeeding at this point, is to keep the message from growing. I pray, Father, we would walk in the Spirit. We would exhibit control. We would exhibit love. And we would exhibit the power that comes in being bold for your sake. That you would use it, Father, to bring the gospel to more. And that you would encourage us as we go about that work. Bring us back in a few weeks, Father, to continue our study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.